about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. This reading is from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And we're starting at chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hand, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. The sermon reading is from 1 Corinthians, looking at chapter 1. So if you're reading from the Moronish Bibles, that's on 1,128. So starting at verse 1 to 17. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers... Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be empty of its power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and ask now that as we hear it, that you would help us to understand it, to be shaped by it and empowered by your spirit to do what it says. Amen. Well, what do you expect from church? What do you expect from church? If you're visiting tonight, you walked in the door expecting something. I wonder what your expectations are. I'd like to hear them afterwards, please. Uh, We like getting a report card from visitors here so we know what's good and what's weird and what's missing. Uh, If you're a regular at church here, you too have expectations of church. What are your expectations of what it means to be part of a church? Perhaps you expect ritual. Perhaps for you, the thing that you want from church is to come and to be still before God to sing and pray and hear from his word, undisturbed by other people, and to leave. Perhaps for you, your expectation of church is that you want to be part of a group of people that you know deeply, that you share your life with, and that takes time. Maybe you're willing to invest hours outside of church to get to know the people in your small group or your congregation so that when you see them on a Sunday, you're not just talking about the weather and how this church has poor cross-ventilation, but, but you're talking about what it means to follow Jesus in all our brokenness and all his fullness. Perhaps your expectation of church is that people will look after you. There's times in our lives, aren't there, when we're not at our peak, when we're not at our best and we just need to be looked after cared for, molly-coddled, but maybe just cared for, when for one reason or another we can't serve as we used to or as we'd like to, 
and we just need to come. Perhaps your expectation of church is where everyone is on the ball with you. You're high energy. You're the extrovert. I don't know anyone like this at all. And your expectation is that everyone gets with the program or they're a disappointment to you and to God. Maybe your, maybe your expectation of church is more organ, less cajon. That's the box that sounds like a drum. What are your expectations of church? It's worth having this in mind, not just as you walk in the door tonight and every night. But as we look at this opening section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to shape for us the beginning of a whole letter about church. He starts by asserting his authority to tell you. Did you notice that in verse 1? Have a look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. We're on page 1128. 1128, just for the maths nerds out there, 11's a prime number, 28's a perfect number because its factors add up to it. That's just giving you time to get to the page. Okay. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul has authority because he is an apostle. That means he's been commissioned by Jesus, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Called an apostle, the will of God. Three times in the one verse, Paul says, listen. I'm speaking on behalf of God here. And then he says who he's speaking to. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he doesn't say to the church in Corinth. What does he say in verse 2? He says to the church of God in Corinth. Of is a beautiful little word. And this is an of that talks about possession. It's not just location. The church of Newtown. No, no, this is the church of God because... It's his possession. The church of God in Corinth. And then he describes who they are. What is this church like? Now, there's lots of ways you can describe a church, right? But the fact that Paul chooses to start his letter in a certain way gives you a hint, like a good essay, like a good story that gives you the complication right at the beginning. Here's the complication for Corinth. They're not living up to who they've been called to be in Jesus. Verse 2, see it says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Five things in verse 2. Don't worry, we won't spend this long in every verse, but this is really important. Five things in verse 2 that you find out about the church. Firstly, it's the church of God. We've already been there. Secondly, sanctified. Now, there's a good church word for you. Sanctified means made holy, which links the second point to the third point. See, sanctified and called to be holy could be read, made holy and called to be holy. And so now it's time to talk about the Princess Diaries. Uh, clearly. (laughs) See, when a person puts their faith in Jesus, when a person, well, the way that point five is going to put it, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, you become part of a church that belongs to God and you get a new calling, not to be a princess, 
but the metaphor stands. You know, in the Princess Diaries movies, she finds out that she's actually royalty. And so the movie ensues that she has to learn to live up to her calling. So it is with anyone who's in Christ. You haven't been called to be a princess, don't buy the lie. You've been called to be holy because you belong to a God who is holy. See how the logic flows. The church of God in Corinth sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. This is a reminder. You walked in here, we prayed prayers of confession because we are not perfect. We are not by nature acceptable to God. The things that I have thought and done this week, the things that I have failed to do, place me out of step with God. In our relationship I have not been who I should have been as one of his creatures. That's what the Bible calls sin. But Jesus steps in and he takes us. And he takes us to the cross and he takes our place so that we can be made who we are not. He's made sin and we are made righteous, perfect in God's sight. And so when God looks at you, when you trust in Jesus... You are sanctified. You've been washed clean. You may not feel it, but it's true. You may not feel it, but it's true. If you are a person who trusts Jesus, who calls him your Lord and King, as God looks at you, you are as perfect as Jesus. And I'm stressing this point because it's hard to remember when you keep stuffing up and failing to live up to your calling. But your stance before God depends not on you, but on Jesus. You have been sanctified. Not just sanctified, but called to be holy. That's the third one. And fourthly, you've been called together. Did you see that word? Together. The church of God is a gathering of people, not just in one place, but it's a little subset of the whole gathering of God's people everywhere. In that Malachi reading, Malachi 1.11, has the phrase, in every place, after Malachi's kind of opened a can on the religious fakery of Israel in the 400 years before Jesus. They were just going to church, going through the motions. And he says, I wish you'd just shut the doors. What God is going to do is gather people from every nation, from every place, and there'll be proper sacrifices That's the church of God. People together from everywhere. See how verse 2 puts it? Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the fifth thing about the church. It is people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. I wonder whether that's you. I can't tell just by looking at you. You don't get a big J stamped on your forehead. It's hard to tell. But calling on the name of the Lord Jesus is one of the ways you can describe being a Christian. Has there been a time when you've said, God, I'm out of step with you, I realise that you love me and I haven't been who I should have been, I've offended you and I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's all it takes to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. The thief on the cross did it. We're getting what we deserve. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, he didn't have time to live up to his calling because he was with Jesus in paradise that day. But for those who live in the world, 
before Jesus returns, we call on Jesus' name and we wait. So, this is the church of God, holy and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to do now is just hit up the first 10 verses and hear about the facts about church, and then the next section where we get a report card on Corinth. The facts and the report card. Have a look with me in verses 3, 3 to 9. As Paul opens his letter to them, he greets them as he always does, words that are easy to skip over, grace and peace, characteristic of the God who is gracious and the peacemaker. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul prays. Well, he tells them what he prays in verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> it's one of those weird things. You haven't actually done anything, Paul says. I thank God for what he's done for you. I thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In case you missed it in the verse before or in the three verses before that, Paul is saying, hey, church, you are shaped by grace. You've been given something. Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. It's not wages. You've been shaped by grace, the grace shown to you in Jesus. And so God is to be thanked. As a result of this grace, verse 4 talks about how you are now rich. If you are part of church, you have been enriched. You've been changed. I don't know what your bank account is like at the moment. I don't really want to know. Uh, you, church, we don't share each other's giving details here. That's fine. Uh, but it, verse 4 says, In Jesus, you have been enriched in every way. And then Paul speaks specifically to the two things that Corinth loves most. What are they? In all your speaking and in all your knowledge. The things that Corinth found most impressive, speaking, rhetoric, and knowledge, philosophy. Paul says, in Jesus, you've found proper speech and real knowledge. He has to make this point because he's going to go on to say that actually the cross looks like bumbling incoherence and absolute weakness. It doesn't look like impressive speech and profound knowledge. Actually, it looks like stupidity and weakness. But actually, the paradox of the cross is that in its foolishness, it is the wisdom of God. And so as part of being included in Jesus, you've been enriched in your speaking and your knowledge. You can hold your head high in Corinth, despite what the cross looks like. You've been enriched in every way, and he gives proof of it in verse 6 by talking about how their lives have changed since they've met Jesus. Here's the logic. The gospel is really powerful, and the proof is that you're different since you started trusting Jesus. Let's read the verse. Verse 5 and 6. For in Jesus you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you means that Paul's saying, 
Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised King of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that God has sent to rule the world. That's the testimony. Paul's saying, I met Jesus, and you should turn to him and repent, turn back to God and put your faith in him. That testimony that Paul's passing on has been proved to be true because you are different since you met Jesus. And if someone tells you that they've met Jesus, but their life hasn't changed, it gives you good ammo to say, I'm not sure whether you really have met Jesus, Mr. Trump. A guy who calls himself a Christian but says he's never asked for forgiveness of sins is not a Christian, according to Paul, because there's no evidence that his life has changed. What about you? Is... Verse 6, something that can be said about you. Has the testimony about Jesus Christ been confirmed in you? Now, I'm not a person who keeps a journal. Maybe you are. If you are, I have respect and admiration for you. Keeping a journal is a great little reminder of the fact that you're not who you used to be. You know, when you see someone every day, you kind of get used to them, you don't really notice the changes. But if you've got that cousin who's, you know, a few years younger than you, you don't see them until Christmas every year, and you're like, wow, you just turned into a grown-up. There's that moment where change happens gradually, and then you finally see it. That's your story if you're a Christian. You're like a tree that's grounded and roots growing in God's Word, and you're bearing fruit little by little. One of the things that happens to you as you keep trusting Jesus is your life changes. Your opinions on things change as you're conformed more and more to the holy person that you're going to be, that you already are. You change. And if you're not changing as a Christian, you've got to ask the question, are you really following Jesus? Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 7, you don't lack anything. You don't lack anything that you need as a Christian as you wait for Jesus to come back. It's there in verse 7. The testimony about Christ has been confirmed in you, so you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I think the Corinthians were a bit paranoid. They were a bit, oh, what about that church over there? They might have gifts that we don't have. Their church looks different to ours. Maybe we should be more like that. You can understand how Christians can be a bit like that. Oh, we're not as whatever as those ones over there. Maybe we're missing out on something. Paul says, chill. You have everything you need. Every charismatic gift. That's the word there. You have every gift that you need to keep trusting Jesus until he returns. By the way, did you notice how being a Christian was described there in verse 7? eagerly waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I don't know what your picture of eagerly waiting is. Uh, We used to have a Labrador called Oscar. He's been dead for a couple of years now. But Oscar was good at eagerly waiting. If he heard the noise of a barbecue chicken being unwrapped out of its bag, he would eagerly wait. And you know the way that they can sit perfectly still, but the tail is... Or when you hear the jangle of the chain... Race to the front door. In that way that Labradors waggle their whole kind of back butt. Eagerly waiting. The picture of a Christian 
is someone who is so identified with the Jesus who will return is that we're eagerly waiting his return. And I've got to tell you, I don't always feel it. I don't always feel the eagerness for Jesus to return. And little verses like this remind me that it's going to be wonderful when Jesus returns, when the sin that oppresses is dealt with, when the justice that we yearn for comes, when those who we've loved and lost, we will see face to face. It's going to be magnificent when Jesus returns, when we will actually be blameless in the way that we're called to be. Eagerly waiting for Jesus' return, we don't lack anything that we need to continue trusting him. Verses 8 and 9 can be summed up in three words. God is faithful. In fact, those three words are in verse 9. Uh, The point that Paul is making is, yes, you're eagerly waiting and the temptation will be that to think that you can do this by your own strength. Can you see how he defeats that belief in 8 and 9? Paul says, he, and here's a little Bible reading tip for you, whenever you see the word he or him or she, just use the noun. Who is is he talking about in verse 8? Jesus. Jesus will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You know, whenever you see two commas in a sentence, the trick is to take out all the stuff in between. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. Yes, it's important that God has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the point of the sentence is that God is faithful. Isn't that a relief to us who are unfaithful? When you don't live up to your calling, God is faithful. When you fall into sin again and again, God is faithful. When you take your eyes off Jesus and you revert to living like you used to be, God is faithful. We can wait eagerly for Jesus' return, knowing that we have everything we need, And that God is faithful. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless. This is good news. But let's look at the report card that Paul gives to the Corinthians. The report card is, well, actually someone's been dobbing on the Corinthians. Uh, We'll start with verse 11 and work backwards. The report card, quarrels and divisions. Now, I used to be a primary school teacher and I quite liked writing reports Okay, not everything about writing reports. But at the first school that I taught with, the report card that we gave was one A4 page. And you hand wrote a little thing for each subject and then an overall comment. I loved it. Well, I loved some things about it. It was annoying if one person made a mistake because you had to scrap it and take it around to all the teachers and blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, a report card is a beautiful thing because it gives you an insight into what's actually happening. Less so with reports these days because outcomes-based reporting is ridiculous, but that's a conversation for another time. (laughs) The report card on the church in Corinth is there in verse 11. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have dobbed on, I mean, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. There's quarrels in a church. (laughs) Who'd have thought it? What? People quarrelling? And the specifics are, verse 12 and following, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Peter, another, I follow Christ. What is going on? Let me paint you the picture. Paul plants the church in Corinth. 
Paul leaves, Apollos, Greek guy, comes and continues the work that Paul had started. Peter, the head of the church in Jerusalem, one of the disciples, also comes and visits and says, hey, it's the same gospel here that it was back there, you're part of the church. And then they get letters from Paul and they keep hearing about Jesus. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Christ. In a city that loves to follow famous voices, the temptation is to say, oh, I identify closely with this guy. When I became a Christian, Apollos was in charge and so he baptised me. (laughs) Well, I was here before you. I was here when Paul was here, so I'm actually on the inside. And so I'm going to pay more attention to Paul and to what he said. And there's quarrels and divisions. Now, I know our church would never be divided on who's the better preacher or who gives the best pastoral care. Obviously, those answers are plain. Um, And so Paul doesn't just leave the report card there to be examined. He makes an appeal to them. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we read the rest of this verse... I just want you to imagine what it'd be like if this was true of our church, right? Or of any church. Imagine what this'd be like. Are you ready? I appeal to you that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. What would that church be like? You'd never disagree on whether a song was appropriate or not. You'd never disagree on what behaviour was appropriate for Christians or not. You'd never disagree on where we should give our money. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't have discussions about these things. But there's something about how Paul describes what is going on in Corinth that's divisive rather than united. And the example he gives is baptism. And this is classic Paul, right? Big theological statement, 10,000 caveats that make you go, what are you talking about? Are you ready? Verse 13, is Christ divided? And by the way, you meant to answer, no, you idiot, to each of these questions. Is Christ divided? No, you idiot. Was Paul crucified for you? No, you idiot. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? No, Paul's getting into the rhetoric. I am thankful that I didn't baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas and probably some other people, but I can't remember them. The point is, it's not about baptism. That's where he comes back to in verse 17. Christ didn't set me to baptise. The main message is the thing that unifies us. What is it? At the tail end of verse 17... Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. See, the power of the cross is demonstrated in changed lives that result in a unified church. The power of the cross is demonstrated in changed lives that result in a unified church, where Jesus is at the centre, where the gospel is the grounds of our unity not who baptised us or where we gather. What would it be like if our church was grounded in the cross and we were of one mind pursuing our identity to be holy? As we set sail on this voyage through Corinthians, 
I want you to have a vision of our church as a place where we have a high calling for holiness. The church of God, sanctified, called to be holy. A body where each part is doing its work, but under the headship of Jesus, where the gospel unites us, where sin is put to death like it should be, where we shine like light in a dark place, where awkward conversations happen because we're all broken and sinful in different ways, but where we are in common because of Christ. The next couple of months are going to get uncomfortable. There's going to be some times when you think, I don't want to do that. As you pray tonight and through the week and in the months to come, I want to challenge you to consider whether you're a person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When push comes to shove, either he's your Lord or he's just some guy you've thought about. If Jesus is your Lord, you will do what he says. You will take his authority above your own. You put your life in his hands, even if it looks ridiculous, even if it looks like you'll end up metaphorically on a cross. A full week, not getting what you deserve. But this is the life in Jesus' footsteps. It's the good life. It's the life to which we have been called. And I'm going to pray that we would see Jesus so clearly that we'd be unafraid to put our lives in his hands. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us to know what to expect from our church. We pray that you would help us to see your holiness more and more clearly that you'd help us to see our own calling into your family, that we might know who we are as individuals and as a church, that we might seek the things that you seek. Father, we thank you that we can be certain that you are for us, for when we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. We thank you for your spirit, that seal that guarantees what is to come. We pray that you would transform each of us and all of us together, that we might be more and more the blameless people we'll be shown to be on that last day. Father, you know that we don't feel it, we don't live up to it now, but strengthen us, we pray, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to trust him as our Lord and King, that we might be the people you call us to be. And we pray this in his name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.